Mature minors should have access to medical assistance in dying in Canada. That's according to a new report from the country's Assisted Dying Committee. For the first time in over a decade, the British Columbia Legislature will sit a Conservative MLA. And the Western Canadian Wheat Growers Association is pushing back against the Trudeau government's fertilizer emissions reduction scheme. Hello Canada, it's Friday, February 17th, and this is the True North Daily Brief. I'm Anthony Fury. I'm Cosman Georgia. We've got you covered with all the news you need to know. Let's discuss the top stories of the day and the True North exclusives you won't hear anywhere else. Only days after the federal Liberal government decided to pause their plans to expand access to assisted dying to persons suffering from mental illness, a new report from Canada's Assisted Dying Committee recommends that it be made available to mature minors. The special joint committee recommended the government of Canada give terminally ill minors the authority to request euthanasia if the minor is believed to have sound judgment. The committee report said medical assistance in dying would be limited to minors who have, quote, requisite decision-making capacity. Now, requisite decision-making capacity was not defined in the report and is determined on a case-by-case basis between patients and made assessors. They're commonly doctors or nurses in Canada. Now, the report noted that rules surrounding assisted death for minors should start strict, but may change. The committee recommended that the government involve parents in a made consultation but ultimately suggested that the government make it so that a child's own decision is final and that the child is capable of overriding their parents' guardianship. Cosman, I really have three things to say about this. Wow, wow, and wow. And that's not a good wow. I mean, we are now just coming right off the heels of the whole world saying, what's going on with Canada allowing this for persons with mental illness? And we put the brakes on that and that was the right decision. And what, now we have a report saying, quote unquote, mature minors who are capable of uh, making this decision? I mean, what on earth is happening here? Right. I think uh, bewilderment is the right response because this comes, you know, about a week after Justice Minister David Lametti announced he was going to put a pause for an entire year uh, to make sure that this legislation makes sense and is safe. Um, and that was just with uh, the uh, mental illness provision. And now we're seeing recommendations to expand this to minors. So it is very confusing, uh, despite the fact that they're putting a, a year pause on this, Lametti has made it clear that the government plans on moving forward with expanding access to MAID. So I'm just not sure what the messaging is here. It seems very conflicted. No, absolutely. And I think that this committee was assigned this task, obviously, well before the international controversy arose. But it does tell us that the sort of a natural headspace right now for where this is headed is to expand it. And it would be really interesting to see how people respond uh, to this latest development. I mean, this idea, oh, mature minors, requisite decision-making capability, um, but you know, we haven't actually detailed what that means. Well, well, we don't allow mature minors to drive, mature minors to purchase alcohol or to purchase cigarettes. We just say, okay, here's the age of majority, you know, 16 driving, 18 voting, what have you. And, and that's it. There's no like, Oh no, this 14-year-old, they they can drive because you know they're they're a bit more mature. Absolutely. And you know, combining these two things, having uh minors who might also have a mental illness as the underlying issue where they're seeking made, 
there's so many questions around whether uh, any individual who is suffering from mental illness, whether it's depression or or, or uh, other symptoms, has the ability to make the decision to to end their life and and you know not see the eventual hope of of getting out of that. On Thursday, independent Nechako Lakes MLA John Rustad announced he was crossing the floor to the Conservative Party of British Columbia, making him the first BC Conservative MLA to sit in the legislature in over a decade. Rustad was removed from the BC Liberal Caucus by party leader Kevin Falcon before the party rebranded as BC United. Rustad told True North, I believe in a more self-sufficient BC, ripe with economic opportunity, compassion for those in need, and a protection for our most personal freedoms. Only one party offers this vision, the Conservative Party of BC. Falcon removed Rustad from the Liberal Caucus in August, claiming Rustad's pattern of dissident behavior was not compatible with the party. Rustad had been criticizing aspects of the Liberal Party's stance on climate change. Shortly before being ejected, Rustad shared a social media post which criticized the connection between CO2 emissions and climate change. So, I'm not sure a lot of people understand the dynamic of uh, politics here in British Columbia. You know, we're talking about the BC Liberal Party, uh, and to many people that uh, might seem uh, similar to the Ontario Liberal Party or the Federal Liberal Party, but in reality, the BC Liberals in British Columbia have been sort of the center right wing party. They almost played the role of the Conservatives. Now, um, you know, this particular MLA's decision to move to the BC Conservatives, which was actually a very established party before uh, the 1970s, they were essentially the main opposition party here and they were vying with the BC Liberals. Uh, to uh, for control of the province until the NDP started uh, coming in. So his decision to move to the BC Conservatives is, is quite a big one because it signals, first of all, a, a center-right alternative to the BC Liberals. And one of the main criticisms that has come from Rustad is that this party, uh, the Liberals, have moved closer to the NDP and the Greens uh, in their messaging and in, in their policy. So... Uh, you know, Anthony, coming from outside of BC, what does this, you know, look like for you? Well, Cosman, I am guilty of being one of those downtown Toronto center of the universe attitude people. So more, I'm, I'm hoping I can get your insights on all this, because to your point, we hear BC Liberal Party, but then we learn that um, it's not actually all that allied with the federal Liberal Party, more of a conservative party. What is the BC Conservative Party? So so paint the picture to me, please, for for folks in Eastern Canada. Absolutely. So the BC Liberals generally tend to be um, more on the uh, fiscal conservative side, and that is essentially where they still are today. But on, on several major issues, including things like uh, responses to climate change, as well as you know some of the mandates we saw during the pandemic, the BC Liberals have sided with the NDP. Um, we just saw a recent debate in, in the legislature condemning the Freedom Convoy uh, a whole year later, and BC Liberal MLAs uh, decided to endorse that um, motion on the floor. Now, Rustad has come from a position where he has been critical 
of the mandates and some of the policy responses here to the pandemic. And he was vocal on social media about his opposition to that. So there's obviously a wedge here, a, a division where the conservative party can establish itself and, and take some ground from the BC liberals. And I think that is the, the main fear for, for the traditional liberals that they could lose voters, especially in, in uh, more rural parts of British Columbia, like the interior and the Fraser Valley, which were essentially BC liberal strongholds, but also have a history of siding with the conservative party. So it'll be interesting to see in, in uh, you know, coming years how this develops, whether there will be any more MLAs to uh, either be courted or, or to join the conservatives. And, you know, there's always the issue of, of by-elections. We did see the conservatives run candidates in two by-elections. I think the first one was actually in Kevin Falcon's riding where they scored about, I think it was either four to six percent. And then by the next one, which was in South Surrey, they were able to score uh, a comfortable 12 to 13 percent. So it'll be interesting to see the electoral outcome. The Western Canadian Wheat Growers Association put out a scathing statement on Wednesday accusing the federal government of ideological capture and failing to base their 30% fertilizer emissions reductions targets on science. In a press release, Wheat Growers President Gunter Jochum said Ottawa never took into consideration how the policy, first introduced in 2020, would impact farm yields. Jochum wrote, Quote, at a time of food insecurity and skyrocketing consumer prices for basic food staples, to fail to consider the impact on the food supply of fertilizer reductions is frankly appalling. Jochum was responding to a February 2nd testimony by the federal government's chief science advisor, Dr. Mona Neymar, who told Conservative MP Dan Mazier that she had not been consulted on whether the voluntary target for farmers would impact Canada's food supply. Take a listen. So you have not personally seen any scientific reports or studies to suggest that the government's 30% fertilizer emissions target can be met without decreasing fertilizer or food production, correct? You haven't I seen have, any science on not, that. You have not seen any have, science on that. Well, I haven't seen, uh, seen any uh, report uh, on this. Namer's mandate includes providing, quote, advice on issues related to science and government policies that support it. This includes advising on ways to ensure that scientific knowledge is considered in public policy decisions and that government science is fully available to the public. Look, Cosman, I think it's well established that a lot of Canadians have an interest in environmental issues, doing right by the climate, and the federal liberal government, whoa, they've really made it clear that they want to do a whole lot of things related to this issue. But at a certain point, you have to acknowledge maybe you can be going too far, or at least moving too fast without thinking about the repercussions. And that seems to be where we're sitting at now. Absolutely. And the liberals are always stressing, you know, their technocratic uh, accolades to always trust the science. But in reality, we see in this particular case, their chief scientific advisor is admitting that she was never consulted on this. Now, I've looked through some of the files uh, in our in our reporting uh, where where the government cites certain studies and, and research that has been done. But clearly, in this case, they're not consulting their own uh, chief advisors whose role is to look over all of that data and provide 
you know, uh, recommendations on it. So it's quite astounding that they're coming up with these targets. And one of the main questions that farmers have had for the federal government, particularly in this issue, is where did that 30% before 2020 levels figure come from? And nobody seems to be able to provide an answer. Cosman, we see more and more farmers pushing back against this here. We saw in the Netherlands that happening, and oh boy, it got aggressive. There were protests that bordered on riots. What do you think is going to happen next in terms of the political calculus? I know in the fertilizer files, you got a lot of window into what was actually happening uh, with emails between different government officials, a real uh, a real insight into the process here. Do you think they're going to uh, continue to go aggressively, or might we see them pause like they've paused with other controversial measures? Well, I think it will all be determined by what sort of outcomes the existing agreements with farmers will be able to achieve. So the ones that will voluntarily uh, accept uh, to undergo some measures to reach this 30 percent. And and I find it I'm I highly doubt that we're going to be able to re, uh, reduce agri fertilizer emissions by 30 percent below 2020 levels across the board here because for example, in Western Canada, the conditions make it such that it's it's uh, nearly impossible to do without reducing fertilizer use, which will have repercussions, as we've seen on on farm yield. So, depending on what the government can achieve, then they're going to reorganize and you know potentially bring in some newer measures. We we saw uh, discussions about introducing a carbon tax like regulatory backstop, so that could be one option. But until then, I'm not sure we'll see a uh, such a pushback from farmers as we did in Europe, in Canada, because it does remain to be voluntary at the current state. That's it for today. And don't forget to check in at www.tnc.news throughout the day for all the news you need to know. And if you're able, please consider supporting independent media at donate.tnc.news. Thanks for listening and have a great day.